You are tuned to KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and K201HR Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Now please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for December 16th, 2020. I'm Joy LaClaire. We have a very full show for you today. Not only is it the 250th anniversary of the birth of Ludwig von Beethoven, but with us for the full hour is political blogger and staff writer for Salon.com, Matthew Roja. Since 2012, in addition to covering politics, he has written about American history, social justice causes, popular culture, and the concerns of the high-functioning autistic community. Towards that end, he appeared on Sesame Street, where he interviewed Elmo and Julia, a character who also has autism. At a time when American democracy is weathering grave challenges to the peaceful transition of government, where the constitutionally required meetings of the Electoral College in numerous states had to be conducted in secret due to credible threats of violence by those seeking to overturn the certified votes, Matthew Roja has a lot to say of what is happening and how it has come to this. Matthew Roja, welcome to Forthright Radio. Thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Matthew, as we are recording this interview on December 14th, 2020, the Electoral College is meeting each in its respective state to cast their votes for president and vice president as required under the U.S. Constitution. And the drama of the 2020 presidential election continues. Last Friday, the Supreme Court ruled in a unanimous three-sentence decision that it would not hear the case brought by the Attorney General of Texas and joined by the Attorneys General of 17 other states, including Tim Fox of Montana, against the states of Michigan, Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, demanding that their combined 62 electoral college votes be invalidated. Over the weekend, the streets of Washington, D.C. and Olympia, Washington, were the scene of pro- and anti-Trump protests, which became violent. All this in the midst of a pandemic that has resulted in the deaths of more than 300,000 Americans due to COVID-19, while many of Trump's adherents deny that there is a pandemic or that he lost the election. The situation is bleak, and many fear it will not be resolved soon or well. What do you say to those who sincerely believe that Trump was the winner of the election and that they are the true patriots for demanding that he have four more years in the presidency? I accuse them of making a bad faith argument. I think this is not a time for mincing words. While... I usually try to give people who disagree with me the benefit of the doubt in terms of their motives. This would be a bit like someone arguing, if I toss a ball up in the air, it isn't going to fall down because gravity doesn't exist. If you make that argument, it is so on its face absurd that I have to conclude the most likely explanation is you are making that argument in bad faith. 
And the reason I say that they're making it in bad faith, let's start with the obviousness of how they're wrong. Trump has said as early as 2016 that he will only accept an election's results if he is declared the winner. He said that during the Republican primaries in 2016. He said that during the general election campaign against Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton in 2016. And he said it multiple times in his campaign against Joe Biden in 2020. Right there, Trump's credibility is undermined because we already knew if he lost this election, he was going to claim the other side cheated. On top of that, if you look at the allegations themselves, more than 50 courts have rejected his claims. Many of those courts presided over by Republican judges, many of those Republican judges appointed by Trump himself, and the Supreme Court unanimously rejected Trump's claims, which included three judges that Trump appointed himself, as well as three other Republicans and three Democrats. Trump has lost every fraud-related claim that he has brought to court. The only claim he won had nothing to do with fraud. It was about whether Pennsylvania had the right to extend its deadline for when mail-in ballots could arrive and be counted. And whatever you may think of that decision, it was not fraud-related. In terms of his allegations of fraud, of this election being stolen, the entire judicial system of this country has unanimously said that Trump lost. His own attorney general, William Barr, who is a notorious toady, has said that Trump lost. And so to continue to argue that Trump won despite these legal rulings, despite Trump making it clear well before this election that he was going to reject any outcome that wasn't favorable to him, defies common sense. And it does so to such a degree that the most likely explanation for people saying that this election was stolen is they're making a bad faith argument. Now, the next question is, why are they making this bad faith argument? I think there are a number of reasons. My colleague, Amanda Marcotte, who is brilliant, has written articles pointing out that they view this as a coup d'etat and that on some level they think of themselves as co-conspirators, as complicit, as in on the con, and they receive a vicarious thrill from playing along. I would also argue that many of them are willfully ignorant, that they're partisan and they wanted Trump to win and are devastated that instead of Trump being a winner, he is now going to be remembered as one of 11 sitting presidents who ran for another term and lost. And that humiliation is so much for them to bear that they will blind themselves to the truth in order to salvage their pride. Either way, the evidence is so overwhelming that I think we as a society need to stop pretending that the people making these Trump really won arguments are doing so from any place that is worthy of respect, intellectually or morally. That brings up, you, you did begin to touch on potential motivation among those who know or suspect that, well, anyway, <laughs> that brings up motivation. And you had a very interesting article in Salon on December 5th, 
2020. The headline was Trump, the fascist artist. How the MAGA crowd is motivated by aesthetics not ideas. Although I can see your point that there are some who know that they're dealing in disinformation, which is a polite way of saying lies. Others are attracted for different reasons. And this article talks about the philosopher Walter Benjamin. Tell our listeners about him and his experience and what he said that led you to write this article. Walter Benjamin was a German Marxist philosopher who produced his most well-known work in the 20th century, right as Adolf Hitler was taking over Germany. He did not receive tremendous success or recognition during his own lifetime. When you read his work, particularly an essay that he wrote in 1936 called The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, he talks about and I'm going to quote this in full because I think it it deserves to be said in full, fascism attempts to organize the newly created proletarian masses without affecting the property structure which the masses strive to eliminate. Fascism sees its salvation in giving these masses not their right, but instead a chance to express themselves. The masses have a right to change property relations. Fascism seeks to give them an expression while preserving property. The logical result of fascism is the introduction of aesthetics into political life. And then in the article itself, I describe Trump as being a performance artist. In many ways, his presidency has been about subverting expectations, engaging in transgressive acts that violate established political norms in this country, and encouraging his followers to feel as if they are part of the show, that their support for Trump and their performance of actions approved of and encouraged by Trump makes them part of this great performance art exhibition against everyone else in the country they dislike. And that ties directly into what I said before about this being a bad faith argument. They're not saying Trump stole this election because there was this overwhelming amount of evidence and my God, how could they not be compelled by it? They're saying that because Trump wants them to say it. He made it clear before Election Day, if I don't win, I'm going to say that it was stolen. They knew that. They're participating in it because, in a way, it is a performance art piece. It is a way of, to paraphrase Benjamin, expressing themselves as a form of political engagement rather than truly trying to solve the problems that are affecting them in their lives, most of which are due to the disproportionate economic power of the 1%. Yes. Now, in recent shows, we have been touching on the history of populism in the United States, a grassroots movement that didn't last very long, but it did succeed in identifying the needs and rightful political aspirations of the great masses of the working people of the United States. And the temporary coalition that was created between the farmers in the late 19th century and the industrial workers of the late 19th century, many parallels 
struggles of today in that at that time the economic inequality and the monopoly characteristics of capitalism at that time were at an extreme their platform as increasing numbers of economic collapses occurred culminating in the 1929 beginning of the great depression much of their platform was in fact enacted in the United States and around the world in programs of what we call the New Deal. Since that time, neoliberal politics has taken over and both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party have embraced neoliberal politics and economics while the Republicans have embraced the rhetoric of populism and i have to say given it a reactionary bad name nowadays populism is used as a derogatory term the democrats i'm i'm just going to leave it there and have you bounce off those ideas i agree with everything you're saying i think that is why fascism has found an opening in the american political discourse because in the late 19th century through the early to mid 20th century, you had one political party, the Democratic Party, which incorporated third party movements like the Populist Party into their platforms and began fighting for the economic rights of marginalized Americans. And it must be emphasized that this coalition was hardly perfect, that the New Deal, for instance, discriminated against African Americans, that the road to a truly diverse coalition, not just economically, but racially and in terms of other metrics that have been used to oppress different groups of people, has been imperfect. But the ultimate goal has been to create an economically and socially just nation for everyone. And over the years, the Democratic Party has abandoned that populist approach and has embraced neoliberalism as seen during the presidencies of Bill Clinton and to a lesser extent Barack Obama as seen for that matter in the candidacy of Joe Biden. I remember remarking during the election at the cruel irony of Donald Trump claiming Biden is a socialist when I supported Bernie Sanders in the primaries. I wish Biden was in fact a socialist. But he's not. He w was nominated because Bernie Sanders was about to sweep the primaries and the Democratic Party establishment had to unite behind someone, anyone who wasn't a Democratic Socialist in order to stop him. And it just so happened that Biden won the next primary on the calendar. So he was the guy. And the point I'm making is when you don't provide these feelings of frustration, these feelings that there are elites who control our society and they're hurting ordinary people, when you don't provide those feelings with a legitimate form of expression, you create an opening that fascist demagogues like Trump can take advantage of in order to help themselves at the expense of the people who they will inevitably claim to be helping. We are speaking with journalist, blogger, Matthew Roja 
about his work and his very interesting take on Trump as a performance artist and the appeal that this has to his adherents. I'm glad you brought up race, Matthew, because especially in this past year, there has been no getting around it. And Trump actually increased the number of voters among what we often consider racial minorities, both Latinx and African-American voters. According to the post-election polls, he increased his number or his percentage of votes among these groups, which kind of seems inexplicable. But he has managed to create the dynamic of a zero-sum game of winners and losers. And it seems to me that he is able to make people believe that they're on his quote-unquote winning team and that it's okay that that means that there are others who are losing. And this I mean economically and in terms of justice and that sort of thing. I wonder if you give any credence to that sort of thinking. Absolutely. I think the Trump movement is based not on a coherent set of ideas, but on a hostility toward people who are othered. At one point in my December 5th essay about the aesthetics of Trumpism, I quoted the Italian philosopher Umberto Eco, and he described the basic tenets of fascism. And one of the things that he discussed is that when fascists speak of, quote-unquote, the people, they're not talking about individuals who all have rights and all deserve respect, but rather as, quote, a monolithic entity expressing the common will, since no large quantity of human beings can have a common will, the leader pretends to be their interpreter. What Trump has very effectively done is take the people and institutions that are personally hostile to him, whether it is law enforcement officials holding him accountable for his alleged crimes, whether it is political opponents in Congress. And he's managed to combine that hostility with hostility that his supporters feel for various groups that they dislike due to their bigotries, whether it's hostility toward immigrants, hostility towards people of Latinx descent, hostility toward Muslims hostility toward women. And so the essence of it is, yeah, he's managed to create this political brand that is based on being hostile to those who are not viewed as being part of the team. In terms of individuals who vote for Trump, even though he dog whistles against their communities, I mean, people are not monoliths. Our demographic labels do not define all aspects of our behavior, there are people who are going to vote in ways that seem illogical to us. And to understand why, you would have to ask them as people. I don't think it would be rational to try to read their minds, at least when you're talking about anomalous political behavior like that. One of the problems that we need to recognize is that we don't see 
each individual to be able to query them, why do you find this so appealing? What we see are those who show up at rallies and that sort of thing, at protests, and they seem very hateful. That's one of the things that I find really disturbing. And you see things, and I'm quoting your article now, T-shirts with controversial messages by appealing to supporters' desire, quote, drive liberals crazy, end of quote. Frequently, Trump supporters will actually admit they don't agree with his rhetoric, but they enjoy his sadistic bullying because it makes them feel good. In other words, they connect with the aesthetic. I guess what that comes down to is liberating them from what they consider the constraints of political correctness. What I find troubling is that this would overwhelm what I consider traditional patriotic values of considering the good of the whole in taking individual actions. And I think a perfect example of that is the politicization of things like mask wearing in the face of trying to control a pandemic. The tension between what people identify as their individual liberty not to wear a mask, even to the point of using pro-choice slogans like my body, my choice, to not take responsibility for their part in spreading the pandemic, even to the point of saying it's a hoax. I think that's an interesting point. I actually wrote an article on July 12th called The Long Ignoble History of Presidents Snubbing Medical Advice, in which I discussed how other presidents before Trump have ignored basic common sense medical advice. William Henry Harrison infamously refused to wear a coat or a hat on the day of his inauguration in 1841. There was a major storm and he wound up getting sick and died. We had President Woodrow Wilson who suffered a serious stroke in 1919 and was basically an invalid for the last year and a half of his presidency. We had Franklin Roosevelt, who, when he was running for his fourth term in 1944, learned that he was essentially highly susceptible to getting a stroke, and he concealed that information from the American public, and then, after winning his fourth term, did, in fact, suffer a stroke and die. So, in a horrible way, by ignoring medical advice, Trump is following in the tradition of presidents who also ignore medical advice, but the key difference is that Harrison, Wilson, and Roosevelt weren't putting other people in direct danger. Harrison wasn't encouraging his supporters to go outside without a coat and hat during a storm. Wilson wasn't giving other people a stroke. Roosevelt wasn't giving other people a stroke. Trump isn't just refusing to wear a mask as a personal preference, he is openly denigrating the importance of mask wearing. Even though I've interviewed literally more public health experts than I can count or keep track of, and without exception, every single one of them says, you should wear a mask. This is not open to debate. This is not a controversial point. People need to wear masks. 
People need to socially distance. People need to follow these basic safety procedures. Even if you're not an epidemiologist, the reason is obvious. This is a respiratory disease. Therefore, if you are around other people and you have the disease, which you may have without knowing it, since it can be asymptomatic, and you cough or exhale or talk or do anything that can cause aerosol droplets to expel from your nose or mouth and be inhaled by someone else, you are spreading the disease. There is no good reason not to wear a mask. But again, I feel like with Trump supporters, it's all part of a performance. It's all part of this idea that they're making a point. They're expressing themselves politically through, in this case, not wearing a mask, not following basic medical advice. May I return to something you said a few minutes ago? Because it reminded me of something that happened to me. And uh, I really want, I think you might find that story interesting. Absolutely. So on election day, I decided to vote in person because there was a lot of unsavory stuff happening in terms of the post office at that time. I wanted to make sure that my vote was actually counted. So instead of mailing it in, I went to the polling place. I wore a mask. I had actually sprained my ankle a few weeks earlier, so I was on crutches, and I had to wait online for about two hours. And there's both a hopeful and a very disturbing subtext to my voting experience, which, by the way, occurred in Northampton County, Pennsylvania, a swing county in this swing state. The disturbing experience is that on three separate occasions while I was waiting, a large truck covered in Trump flags and Trump bumper stickers, driven by someone who was wearing Trump regalia head to toe, drove around the parking lot of the church blaring loud music. And this happened three times while I was there in a span of roughly two hours that averages about to once every 40 minutes. And I just kept thinking, how is this not a form of voter intimidation? Yes, this person didn't break the law. They had a First Amendment right to do what they did. But logically, this person didn't think that someone was going to be standing on the line undecided and then see a giant truck covered in Trump crap, forgive my language, and say, oh, that changes my mind. Now I'm going to vote for Trump. This was obviously intended to intimidate people in my precinct who were planning on voting against Trump. And by the way, my precinct did actually vote for Biden, albeit by a very small margin. So that, that experience on election day was just chilling to me because it was so clear what this person's motive was. And it was so clear that this person was doing everything that they could to essentially act like a thug on behalf of Trump right up to the point where it could possibly be illegal. And then they shied away a little bit. The hopeful thing I will say is, as I mentioned earlier, I was actually on crutches and the poll workers at my polling place could not have been kinder, could not have been more accommodating. They came out and made sure that I had a chair so that I could sit whenever I could. It was one of those things where the line would move and then stop and then move and then stop. And they obviously understood that that was very uncomfortable for me. And I don't know if those poll workers were Democrats or Republicans. My guess is it was probably both. But they were wonderful and gracious. 
and compassionate. And so when I voted on Election Day 2020, it's like I got to see both the best and the worst part of the American spirit in that individual experience that morning. We're speaking with Matthew Rocha. He is a journalist at Salon.com. Do you think, Matthew, or did you see it intimidate anyone to the point where they left the line? No, I did not see anyone leave the line. The people in my immediate vicinity either ignored it or reacted to it as if it was funny. That's just what I observed. Again, there was a huge line. I obviously couldn't see everyone on the line, but the people near me either just disregarded it or I could hear some people chuckling. Uh huh. But what it was, at the very least, was an exhibition of power. It was a power play, which is also one of the things I find increasingly discouraging. Although I'm sure the impulse to express power is in all of us, it seems to me that at least over the past, oh, I would say since Newt Gingrich became Speaker of the House in the mid-90s, The Republicans have manifested a ruthlessness to power by any means necessary that just gets more and more shocking. I want to quote an op-ed piece in yesterday's New York Times by Charles M. Blow. The headline is, Trump has never believed in democracy. He wants to wield power without winning it legitimately. And among the things that Charles Blow says is, And he's referring to the attempts in the courts, etc., to delegitimize the votes of many people. But, of course, this isn't about restoring faith in our elections. Rather, it is about allowing Trump to further degrade that faith. Scalise and many other Republicans are accomplices in this crime against our democracy. Trump is still trying to steal this election, and they are outside revving the engine of the getaway car. As usual, Charles Blow hits the nail on the head. I completely agree with all of that. And it goes back to what my colleague Amanda Marcotte has written. I think a lot of these Trump voters, when they say that they think this election was stolen, like Trump, they knew they were going to say that regardless of what happened on Election Day. Any outcome other than Trump winning, they were going to deem illegitimate regardless of the details. We know this because they said this. This isn't me speculating. This is me simply referring to Trump's own quotes and the quotes of his supporters at the time before the election. And then Trump lost. And now they're doing exactly what they said they were going to do. And so the key to answer the question you posed at the very beginning of this interview, how do you talk to people who have that mindset? The only thing you can really do at first is try to present them with the facts which is that Trump's own attorney general and his own judges and dozens of other judges, including the entire Supreme Court, have tested all of his claims of fraud and have found them all wanting. There are no exceptions to that rule. Every case related to fraud, Trump has lost. However, my guess is most of the people claiming that Trump stole the election aren't going to want to hear it because, as Blow pointed out, as Marcotte has pointed out, this isn't really about feeling legitimately robbed, this is about them believing that their fascist leader should have power no matter what. 
So it's a bad faith argument. They're not really complaining about what they believe to be an injustice. They just want to make sure that a fascist who makes them feel like they're part of this great spectacular show stays in power because that gives them a feeling of empowerment. And that's what's so scary right now. And it's also, by the way, unprecedented. Like I said, we've never had a president, a sitting president, seek another term, lose, and then even intimate the possibility that they wouldn't accept the election's results. Some of them have been bitter. Some of them have done petty, vindictive things against their successors. But we've never had a president just flat out tell his supporters, it's time to move past this whole democracy thing. If we win, we'll accept it. If we lose, we'll just say that they stole it. So that way we can win again regardless. And that philosophy is fundamentally antithetical to democratic forms of government. They're incompatible. People who think like that, people who subscribe to that mindset are a threat to democracy, and the only way to respond to them is to ignore them, is to say that because you're making an argument in bad faith, and because your bad faith argument is threatening democracy itself, you don't get taken seriously. You do not get a seat at the table. You either respect the rules of democracy like everyone else in this society, or your voice will just be ignored. There are parallels in history, as Mark Twain is purported to have said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. One of the rhyme schemes here is post-World War I, after the Germans capitulated, during the 1920s, the myth evolved that they hadn't actually lost on the battlefield. Their conspiracy was created that they were undermined by particularly Jews and that had they not been betrayed, they would have been the victors in the war. There was a tremendous economic dislocation. And remember, this was also a post pandemic period as well, that gained currency, that theory of conspiracy to undermine the Germans. And some people said, these guys are crazy, they should be ignored. But ignoring them did not work out so well within the next 20, 30 years. The Nazis proliferated this conspiracy theory, a small minority at the very beginning but we all know how that turned out. So I think I hear what you're saying. Don't feed the people who are promulgating this disinformation. But at the same time, I'm not sure that ignoring it is good in the long run. I think perhaps instead of saying ignoring it, I will say that we should be deplatforming these people. First, I must emphasize the First Amendment gives them the right to say what they want, even if what they're saying is repugnant. But if I were hypothetically to go out there and say, we need to stop breathing, everyone should just hold their breath, and if you start to breathe, you should plug up your nose, but either way, everyone should stop breathing. No one would take me seriously, because if they took me seriously, people would die. And so I shouldn't be allowed to have a national platform where I encourage everyone in the world to suffocate themselves to death. Now, obviously, 
that's a silly hypothetical scenario, but that's essentially what I'm advocating when it comes to the people who claim that Biden stole the election. To quote Daniel Patrick Moynihan, everyone is entitled to his own opinion, but not his own fact. People are not entitled to have a public platform where they can influence the health of our country and use that platform to state flat-out lies. This isn't a matter of opinion. It is not my opinion that Biden won this election fair and square. It is a fact that Biden won this election fair and square, just as it is a fact that previous Republican presidents like Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, George Bush Sr. won their elections fair and square. This is a fact, and people who try to deny those facts because whether they're going to admit it to us or not, they want a fascist to stay in power regardless of whether the people voted for that fascist, they should not receive a national platform. And when they try to obtain a national platform, responsible social media platforms and responsible national media outlets need to kick them to the curb. I'm glad you sent us in that direction because I also want to talk with you about your November 30th, 2020 article. The internet has been captured by the right. The Gravel Institute is trying to take it back. Tell us about PragerU with radio talk show host Dennis Prager and screenwriter Alan Estrin, who began in 2009 to create short videos promoting right-wing ideas. What has come of their efforts? What has come of their efforts is that a lot of people who go to YouTube innocently will wind up falling down this rabbit hole of right-wing propaganda that is very well financed, that includes charismatic personalities making arguments which people who are not well informed about American history or world history or economics will take seriously. And so as a result, they are making a far-right brand of conservative ideology more popular. One of the people who's been promoted very heavily on their shows is Ben Shapiro, who, interestingly, I actually interviewed last year. And during that conversation, he argued that if a child's parents aren't able to afford to feed that child, the government should take the children away because America is a country of limitless opportunity, and therefore it must be due to a flaw in their parenting. And when I responded to Shapiro by arguing that this was a horrible thing to say and that systemic poverty exists and many parents can't afford to feed their children because of systemic poverty, he responded tellingly by saying that he refused to accept the premise of what I was saying. He couldn't prove that the premise was wrong. He didn't even try to prove that the premise was wrong. He simply refused to accept it on its face. And that moment, in a way, symbolizes the problem with PragerU having so much influence. This is not really an organization that cares about the pursuit of truth. They don't care about informing people. In fact, they encourage people to reject truths when that truth creates a premise which contradicts their ideological agenda. Unfortunately, because they have so much influence and so much financial backing, they've been able to convert minds or at the very least 
spread misinformation that has polluted our political discourse. All right, now tell us about the Gravel Institute. The Gravel Institute is named after former Alaska Senator Mike Gravel, and it is attempting to be a counterpoint to the PragerU, and it already has contributors or is planning on having contributors, including the American philosopher Cornell West, Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, economist Richard Wolff, who I've also interviewed many times and is a brilliant man, and comedian John Benjamin, who I've never interviewed, but I am a big fan of. So, yeah, it's essentially an attempt to counter PragerU's influence. Whether or not it will succeed depends on a number of factors, all of which I have no control over, obviously. It occurs to me that neuroscience is continuing to provide us insights into why things that terrify us, alarmist kind of things, get our attention so much more than things like Bernie Sanders explaining why Medicare for all is good for everyone. And it's it's almost as if our evolution has predisposed us to heading towards disaster. Am, Am I wrong about that? You would have to ask someone who specializes particularly in evolutionary psychology Certainly, I think people are very easily distracted by spectacles. I mean, this is why during the decline of the Roman Empire, you would hear about these grandiose Colosseum events that would be held to keep the people entertained, even as the emperors plundered the public treasury and waged imperialist wars. I'm paraphrasing a a quote from Men in Black, but an individual can be very intelligent, but people as a mass can often be stupid. And I think that plays a role in why really important issues like climate change, like how to effectively address this pandemic, fixing income inequality so that we don't have this major misdistribution of wealth, ending racial injustices once and for all, why those receive less focus among people like Trump supporters than the fact that Trump was able to troll the liberals and they received some kind of vicarious thrill from seeing him upset individuals that they've been trained to dislike, which, by the way, if we want to refer back to my December 5th essay, Echo argued that fascists create a false idea about who the quote-unquote elites are in society. And right now, Trump has convinced his supporters that people like me who work for a major media news outlet or people like Joe Biden, who has been a senator for who has been in America, has been national politics for almost half a century and is certainly not a radical, that they are the dangerous elite rather than Trump himself and the people who support his political career. In that same article, the, the article, The Internet Has Been Captured by the Right, you quote Sam Husseini. You know, we hear so much about the left-wing media and how they have control of the agenda, when in fact, I'm quoting Sam Husseini now, 
The authentic left is largely invisible or rendered so even by so-called liberal or progressive media. Plowshares activists are facing months and months in jail for challenging nuclear weapons, and there's largely silence on the issue. The left is marginal because it falls in love with opportunistic politicians rather than getting behind real, self-sacrificing activists pressing for concrete change. End of the quote. Thank you so much for including that quote in the article. Any comments? Oh, I completely agree with his quote. I think that for a robust left wing to exist in this country, the Democratic Party needs to move away from politicians like Joe Biden and more toward politicians like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Bernie Sanders or people who address these issues of issues like the proliferation of nuclear weapons, issues like the marginalization of racial minorities, issues like the fact that capitalism itself is unsustainable and mere reforms aren't going to be enough. We need a systemic overhaul of the entire economic order. And he is correct. The authentic left is largely invisible. It only really seems to be energized when there is someone even more noxious on the right. And I would go so far as to say that when it came to the 2020 election, that's a big part of the reason why Democrats really didn't do that well. They lost seats in the House of Representatives. Barring a miracle in the upcoming Georgia Senate elections, the chances are they're not going to retake control of the Senate. And I think the reason is Democrats didn't win. Donald Trump lost. The reason Trump lost by 7 million votes, Joe Biden received 51.4% of the popular vote. Donald Trump received 46.9%, which means there is a 4.5% difference in the popular vote margin between the two candidates, as well as the exact same electoral college margin by which he defeated Hillary Clinton four years earlier, 306 to 232, is because Democrats really didn't have a case other than he's not Trump. They assembled a coalition based not around authentic left-wing goals that would really help people, but simply around the fact that the alternative was four more years of Trump. And that tactic might help win elections when you have a genuine fascist as your opponent and a fascist who has bungled severely during a national crisis like a pandemic and a second recession, but as a viable long-term strategy for political success, it has very self-evident flaws. What potential do you see sticking with the Democratic Party for more people-centered, nourishing kind of politics It seems to me that the power brokers in the Democratic Party continue to have a philosophy of you don't have any place else to go, so why should they change in terms of how they do their national politics? I think the only answer is for people on the authentic left to become more involved in local elections, in gubernatorial elections, to become actively involved in Democratic Party primaries, to pick candidates who have the ideals of a Sanders or an Ocasio-Cortez, and to start from the ground up. 
Uh, I would say my criticism of many on the left is they seem to be disengaged from the electoral process right up until the moment when it's too late. And going forward, they need to be involved at every level of government during the primaries as well as the general elections. Take the time, research where each of the candidates stand, look at who is giving each candidate money, because if you really want to see what a candidate will do if elected, you have to look at who bankrolled their ability to get elected and make sure that those candidates align with left-wing values and stop buying into this argument that if Democrats only nominate milquetoast moderates, they're going to be doomed because that argument has been used over and over again it didn't work in 2004 when John Kerry lost to George W. Bush. It didn't work in 1988 when Michael Dukakis lost to George Bush Sr. It only worked this time around because Donald Trump was something far more toxic than either of the Bushes. But really, the solution has to be to not simply be engaged when the stakes are so insanely, ridiculously high that even the most apathetic voter feels a twinge of conscience and thinks, well, I should probably vote for Biden because Trump is horrible. But to actually support doing the right thing when it comes to these issues like nuclear weapons proliferation, like climate change, like income inequality, like racial injustice, do something about them 24 hours a day, seven days a week, even when it's not election day during a presidential election year. Well, Matthew Rocha, we've been discussing the troubles of our current state. I would love it if you could end our interview with something to cheer us up a little. Do you can do you have anything like that? <laughs> yes, I know I'm repeating something I mentioned earlier, but those poll workers who helped me when I was on crutches about to cast my vote it really was uplifting. It really, it reminded me that for all, and I'm sure that's, like I said, I didn't ask them their party affiliation, but it was more than one person helping me out. So it's reasonable to guess that some were probably Democrats and some were probably Republicans. And all of them were very kind and all of them were very accommodating. And it just reminded me that even though this election has been unprecedented because we've never had a sitting president refuse to accept defeat, in terms of the precinct level, the level of our communities, our neighborhoods, we're still neighbors. We're still living in the same municipalities. We're still sharing the same space. And on an individual to individual level, regardless of what their political beliefs were, they came together to help someone out who they saw was uncomfortable because he was on crutches. And I know it may sound like a silly little thing, but I remember thinking at the time, this is the best of America, is people from both sides getting together and just showing an act of kindness to someone who needed it. In researching you, I've, I saw your Sesame Street piece talking about autism, and I'm, I'm just curious how autism has affected your life and your work. I actually wrote an essay on November 25th, 2017, called I'm a liberal because I'm autistic, in which I explain how being autistic has shaped my political philosophy. 
Growing up, I frequently struggled in social situations and was bullied. In my early jobs, I would always get fired because I had trouble making eye contact or because I would talk about history or politics or other things that I found interesting and had trouble realizing when in those kinds of conversations were appropriate and when they weren't. I struggled to follow instructions that were given by my supervisors and the combination of being bullied and socially rejected and having economic fear instilled in me because it occurs to me, oh, my God, I may not be able to financially support myself as an adult because of these things that I can't control. Those experiences taught me that everyone is struggling and everyone who exists today has hardships, and we need to have a political philosophy based on compassion, both because it is in our own self-interest and because morally it is the right thing to do. And when you look at the two sides that exist in America today, you have one side, the Democrats, that are at least somewhat compassionate, although they are compromised by the fact that they are hostage to their donors, and then you have another side that actively rejects compassion and literally elected a fascist troll to lead the nation. So these are not great options, but one option is clearly preferable to the other. Also, if people want to reach out to me on Twitter, you can do so. My Twitter handle is at Matthew Roja, and my last name is Hungarian. It's a little tricky to spell, but it's R O. V as in zebra, F-A. Well, Matthew Rocha, I think you're an example of what's the best in America with the work you do at Salon.com, the amount of work that goes into your essays, and the way you help us to clarify the situations. I very much appreciate your work, and thank you so much for joining us today on Forthright Radio. Thank you for your kind words. It really has been my pleasure. You have just heard a conversation with Matthew Roja, political blogger and staff writer for Salon.com. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production broadcast each first and third Wednesday of the month from the Philo Studios of KZYXNZ, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. I'm Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. As I mentioned in the introduction, many are celebrating the 250th anniversary of the birth of Ludwig von Beethoven. I leave you with an excerpt from his Ode to Joy. Till next time, this is Joy LaClaire signing out for now.
This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.